0: Well, you're listening to the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. We're here every week, as you well know, uh, to defend and to promote uh, public schools. Those are schools that are public in purpose and outcome. Above all, they are public in access. Anybody can go to them with no discrimination against them and they should be public in ownership and control because they are the only ones that can possibly be Uh, publicly accountable. Now, in the last week there have been, or the last couple of weeks, there have been a couple of issues uh, in the education area which uh, we would like to refer you to today. One of these is the uh, idea from the OECD that Australia has very disruptive classrooms and, in fact, so... uh, Murraying has this uh, issue become that the government in Canberra has set up a Senate Education and Employment Reference Committee inquiry into the issue of increasing disruption in Australian school classrooms. <clears throat> but the dogs, and I think the AEU too, are and should be concerned that this is a not terribly cleverly veiled attempt at teacher bashing. And our public school teachers uh, are sick and tired of the bashing that's been going on. Given that they were so important during COVID, Uh, they want more than thanks, and so they should get more than thanks. They should be properly paid. They should be respected, and they should not be this uh, constant uh, calling them to account for anything that goes wrong the system when in fact our public schools are badly underfunded. So here is our press release 978 and uh, why did the OECD, what did the OECD really emphasise about Australian education? The media just picked up on the disruptive classrooms, the OECD I assure you had a lot more to say. Over to you Oliver.
1: Thank you Jane. Media commentaries on the OECD report on the problems with Australian education. Education policy outlook in Australia have to date emphasised classroom disruption and the Albanese government has established a Senate Education and Employment Reference Committee inquiry into the issue of increasing disruption in the Australian school classrooms. It is very disappointing that the Australian media, including The Guardian, have failed to read the whole of the OECD report on education policy outlook for Australia. On the 11th of April, 2023, the AEU noted that, while the OECD makes it clear that Australian students perform well compared to internationally, our PISA performance continues to decline and there are significant gaps in literacy and numeracy proficiency amongst 15 year olds. There are also gaps in achievement for students with additional needs and students from disadvantaged backgrounds The majority of whom were enrolled in public schools. The OECD outlook makes clear the urgent need to address the fundamental and enduring inequities in education in Australia. It also highlights the need to consult and work with the teaching profession at all stages. Nevertheless, the emphasis upon disruption in some classrooms has lent both credibility and encouragement to the cult of teacher bashing in the right wing think tanks of Australia. An article by Greg Ashman on the website for Filling the Pale is a case in point. Readers are invited to read this article, which attacks the AEU submission to the Senate Committee inquiry into the issue of disruptive classrooms. But rather than give it oxygen, dogs will refer readers to the very comprehensive AEU submission itself. The link to that's on the website. This submission is well-researched and very comprehensive. The following are excerpts from it. Introduction. The Australian Education Union, AAU, represents over 195,000 members, most of whom are employed in public primary and secondary schools throughout Australia. These members educate over 2.6 million school students, including the vast majority of students with disability, students from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds, students from households with low levels of English proficiency, and students from low socio-educational backgrounds. Every child in Australia is entitled to a free, comprehensive and secular education, and public schools are open to all and do not discriminate on the basis of religious affiliation, academic achievement, or the ability of parents to pay fees. The AEU entirely rejects the assumptions about disorderly, poorly disciplined classroom environments and the inappropriate interpretation, the OECD disciplinary climate index in this inquiry's terms of reference. We also note that whilst this inquiry terms of reference presume that disruption is rife, there is no attempt made to investigate the factors that drive current conditions in Australian schools. This submission will seek to rectify the shortcomings of this inquiry by addressing the litany of education policy failures over the last decade that have left Australian public schools without the resources they urgently need to meet the needs of students. Public education is a public good, and a comprehensive education available to all benefits the whole of society. Equitably re- resourced public education provides lifelong benefits through improved health, well being, and employment options, improves society by increasing equity and social cohesion, and provides a myriad of economic benefits in terms of increased productivity and economic activity. It is the glue that holds together civil society and the economy by developing the capacity of people to lead fulfilling and productive lives. The importance of public education as a driver of progress was first recognized in Australia from the 1830s onwards. And the education settlement in Australia continues to be that every community in Australia should have well-resourced government schools open to all. Professor Alan Reid argues that public education is central to the principle of universalism. But there must be free, secular and compulsory state schools funded by state and federal governments and available to all in every local community in Australia. But these schools should be inclusive, comprehensive, well resourced and staffed. And the public education should be understood not as a commodity to be used solely for the benefit of individuals, but as a community resource to which everyone has rights of access. Public education systems must be resourced to provide quality of opportunity to fulfil its purpose as a public good. Public education must focus on equity and equality in opportunity. This requires universal access to well-resourced public education from early childhood onwards, including quality early childhood education, primary and secondary school, and the opportunity to access further or higher education. The OECD reporting the 2018 PISA results stated, the principle that every person has a fair chance to improve his or her life, whatever his or her personal circumstances, lies at the heart of a democratic political and economic life. The OECD concludes that success in education can be defined as a combination of high levels of achievement and high levels of equity. And furthermore, that equity in education is also a matter of design and as such should become a core objective of any strategy to improve an education system. The OECD consistently finds that high performance and greater equity in education are not mutually exclusive and has consistently concluded that the equity with which resources are distributed across schools has a significant impact on how the system performs overall. Economic inequality has been steadily rising in Australia since the turn of the century. The Gini coefficient, which measures the level of income inequality in all nations on a scale of 0, perfectly equal, to 1, perfectly unequal, Australia's score has risen from 0.303 in 1997 to 98 to 0.318 in 2021, which makes Australia the 11th most unequal country in the OECD At the same time, Australia's performance in PISA is in long-term decline and shows wide gaps between economically advantaged and disadvantaged students. In PISA 2018, Australia scored higher than the OECD average in reading and science, but not significantly different from the OECD average in mathematics. Performance in mathematics has been declining for 15 years and in science for six years, these results show the impact that ed- educational inequity has on student outcomes. In Australia, students from socioeconomically advantaged households outperform students from disadvantaged households in reading by 89 score points in PISA 2018. Some 24% of students from advantaged households in Australia, but 6% of students from disadvantaged school households were top performers in reading PISA 2018. Socioeconomic status was a strong predictor of performance in mathematics and science in all PISA participating countries. It explained 11% of variation in mathematics performance in PISA 2018 in Australia and 10% of the variation in science performance. Only 13% of students from disadvantaged households scored in the top quarter of reading performance within Australia. To counter this inequity, it is imperative to restore the basic notion of education as a public good with equitable access to the resources of the state and where the benefits spread across society in terms of employment, economic prosperity, health and social cohesion. These benefits as provided by a well-resourced public education system allow students to engage successfully in school, reinforces egalitarianism in Australian society, and provides the economy with the productive capacity it needs to grow. For for society to gain the most benefit from public education, it is necessary for schools to be well and equitably resourced. The 2012 Review of School Funding Final Report determined that a needs-based sector-blind model, the schooling resource standard, SRS, was the minimum recurrent funding required to ensure that the majority of students reach minimum achievement benchmarks. The review concluded that adherence to the full SRS was essential for fairness and equality of opportunity in education. Since 2013, delivery of the full SRS to public schools has been consistently and deliberately undermined by the former Commonwealth coalition government. Changes to Commonwealth funding arrangements to the Australian Education Act, as amended in 2017, dismantled the coordinated needs-based approach to schools funding initiated by the Australian Education Act 2013. And in the five years since the amendment, there has been further destruction of the original aims and focus of the 2013 Act. $3.4 billion of additional funding was provided to private schools over 10 years from 2020 to accommodate the transition to the direct measure of income in the calculation of parental capacity to contribute. Coupled with the euphemistically named $1.2 billion Choice and Affordability Fund, both announced as one of the first acts of the Morrison government in September 2018, they demonstrate that the former government's funding priorities were neither needs based nor sector blind. In addition, the failure of the previous Commonwealth government to honor signed National Education Reform Agreements, NERA, with the states and territories resulted in public schools not receiving $1.9 billion of funds that were expected under these agreements in 2018 and 19, and the imposition of new National School Reform Agreements, NSRA, on states and territories in 2018 and 19. The combined impact of all these changes, along with depreciation write-offs that the previous government allowed jurisdictions to make in their individual funding agreements, have resulted in public schools in Australia being underfunded by more than $20 billion since 2018 and by $6.6 billion in 2023 alone. The legacy of this entrenched funding neglect is that on average, every public school student in Australia is missing out on $1,800 of funding every single year. In the average class of 23 students, this amounts to $41,000 per year that is not available for specialist support with literacy and numeracy, English language support and specialist support and timely assessments for students with disability. Students labeled as disruptive are often neurodiverse or have disabilities and need appropriate resources to meet their needs. Many students labeled as disruptive are neurodiverse or have disabilities, a well-resourced public education system that values diversity understands social and cognitive development, engages all learners through inclusive processes and is responsive to fundamental human needs and has the potential to develop all students into highly literate, numerate, actively engaged, resilient and connected members of the wider community.
0: Well, thank you very much, Oliver. That was a a pretty comprehensive report. Um, we haven't uh, given it all to you, of course. It's taken quite a bit of time, of our time, but we thought that it was well worth uh, the time. But uh, the dogs congratulate the AEU on their submission to this Senate inquiry because the gross inequity in Australian education has been caused by the public funding of a parasitic, wealthy, private system, and it's placed enormous pressure on our dedicated public school teachers and parents. And the dogs, like a lot of those those people in the public system, are sick and tired of the teacher bashing. And the time has come to say, enough is enough, and lay the blame for the teacher burnout at the feet of the real culprits, the greedy private operators, the market ideologues, and the timid politicians. And the state aid experiment of the last half century has failed our children, our teachers, and our nation. So we'll have a bit of a break, and we'll come back with some more interesting news.
2: It's all about a voice in our own country.
3: We've got a reason to screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, Not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not... you know, We're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've
2: got, but it's all about having a voice.
3: Subscribe to
1: 3CR, fiercely independent and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377.
4: 3CR subscriber?
1: We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community
0: governance.
3: It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today.
1: 3CR Radical Radio.
0: Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and Dale has an interesting article for you. Before the break, we mentioned timid politicians. Yes, well, timid timid thinking no longer cuts it and change is needed.
4: Over to Dale. Thanks, Jane. This article is called Timid Thinking No Longer Cuts It. Change is Needed Now. On Monday, the Melbourne Graduate School of Education hosted a policy symposium and public forum called Funding, Equity and Achievement. And this article is by Jane Kenway, who's an elected fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences Australia, uh, emeritus professor at Monash University and professorial fellow at the University of Melbourne. Her research expertise is in educational sociology. Their buildings are substandard cheap and poorly ventilated. Their classrooms are under-resourced and uninviting. Their gardens are sparse and bleak. Their play and sports grounds are inadequate, frequently small and ill-equipped. Their students often struggle at school and their families often struggle at home. Money is scarce. Employment and housing are insecure and good health care is usually unaffordable. Their teachers work harder than most because their students need more help than most. But these teachers don't receive anywhere near the support and recognition they deserve. Many schools, many such schools are government schools, yet they are left to make do with minimal resources and minimal care from state and federal governments. They've been pretty much abandoned, left to deteriorate, not properly helped prosper instead these governments have allowed the private sector of schooling to grow without limit depleting struggling government schools of the material and human resources they need for their students to flourish rather than flounder these schools and these kids are part of the long tail of underachievement that characterizes the australian schooling system but the tail's problem can't be addressed in isolation. They have the tragic effect of much bigger problems. Australia's schooling system is among the most privatised and least equitable in the world, and it underperforms on many indicators. New opportunities for equitable, achievement-oriented change in Australian schooling have arisen in 2023. We now have a progressive national government, an equity-sensitive federal minister for education, and the National School Reform Agreement is being renegotiated. The time is thus ripe to reconsider and reconfigure the fateful intersections between school funding, equity and achievement. This requires a critical examination of the vexed relationships between the public and private sector and federal and state governments. On Monday, the Melbourne Graduate School of Education hosted a policy symposium and public forum called Funding, Equity and Achievement, which interrogated these intersections and vexed relationships. The symposium room was packed with 75 experienced education policy analysts, members of key stakeholder groups and people from state and federal governments. Ten eminent thinkers, including speakers Professor Barry McGaw, the Honourable Dr. Carmen Lawrence, AO, and the Honourable Verity Firth, AM, shared their views and the public forum attracted over 250 participants off and online. The Melbourne University's Twitter feed had over 3,000 views. The Gonski Report of 2011 was a touchstone for discussion at this event. All agreed that its funding solutions to the problem of equity and achievement have since been seriously watered down. Some argued that the political timidity of the National Labor Government, the power of the private school lobby and the sectional interests of the states were ultimately responsible. Gonski light was the result. Yes, needs-based recurrent funding arrangements were a result and the focus on needs was welcome. But ultimately, as many policy experts at the symposium showed, greed replaced need. Gonski was always on the light side, others insisted. It was constrained from the outset by an invented funding architecture involving state, Catholic and independent school systems. This architecture, they argued, is a policy construction and convenience, yet it is treated as immovable and untouchable. The implicit message to the Gonski review team was don't mess with the private schools. Historians in the room shared examples of the formidable power of private school backlash politics and of their serious electoral consequences. So began an unjustifiable pattern of school funding. This is known as the 80-20 split. The wealthier federal government provides 80% Funding to private schools and 20% of funding to state schools. The poorest states and territories do the reverse. And here's the kicker. The federal government meets its funding obligations to private schools and constantly provides them with lavish top-ups. In contrast, the states and territories seldom meet their funding obligations to state schools. Speakers at the symposium provided an avalanche of carefully researched numbers which left no doubt about the serious funding inequities. Slide after PowerPoint slide showed how private schools have been consistently overfunded and how state schools have been consistently underfunded. A vicious funding circle was identified. The more resources the private sector gets, the more it grows. The more it grows, the greater its market dominance and share of allocated resources. Along with this is a sense of entitlement to automatic funding. In turn, this has led to the private school sector opening new schools and upgrading and expanding existing ones at will. This sector has thus enjoyed unfettered growth, become ever bigger and more middle class and more segregated from wider Australia. Few people in the room agreed with the funding split that has allowed this to happen. Many firmly believed that the Commonwealth should more equally share its funding benevolence with state schools. And for this to happen, they thought a national schools resourcing body, as proposed by Gonski, should be established. This would oversee funding for both public and private schools together. The relationships between the sectors would be in plain sight public funding to private schools is untied. They are not required by law to provide any wider public funding. They do as they please despite the copious amounts of public money they receive. The symposium audience was shown how the wealthiest private schools draw on their funding excesses to fund their infrastructure excesses. We wondered if such overabundance could be justified in educational terms. We agreed it was more about market signalling than student learning. So why fund it? Other questions arose. Should public money be conditional on private schools democratising their fee structures, entry policies and government practices, governance practices? Yes. What can stop them from draining the state school sector of money, reputation and the best teachers, students and parents? Cap their growth for a start properly fund all state schools so that they can be the best they can be. The policy symposium provided unequivocal evidence that increases in private school funding have been at the expense of funding for public schools, especially for struggling schools in struggling locations. Such underfunding, we agreed, leads to underachievement. Indigenous kids, country kids, kids with disabilities, and kids from low-income families underachieve because they are undersupported and they are undersupported because they are underfunded. Struggling schools in struggling locations have less money to spend on the bare necessities. Additional resources are necessary to allow them to meet their complex needs in the best possible way. Distinct and distinctive interventions are required. Ken Boston, a member of the Gonski Committee and former Director General of the New South Wales Education Department, said as much back in 2017. They need smaller class sizes, specialist personnel to deliver the appropriate tiered interventions, speech therapists, counsellors, school and family liaison officers, including interpreters and a range of other support. And that support requires money. You can't deliver education as a genuine public good without strategically differentiated public funding directed at areas of need. That's what Gonski sought to achieve. Such under-support is sometimes driven by a naive policy mindset. It goes like this. It's not the money that matters, but what you do with it. Money and what you do with it matter. It's not an either-or situation. Serious concerns were expressed that the current Federal Labor government might not live up to its policy rhetoric. People feared it might adopt a target and tinker approach. Safe, simple, and unlikely to make much difference. Time and again, people, people called for systemic change. Presenters shared international studies that convincingly show how achieving equity at the systemic level leads to systemic improvements in achievement. Put equity first and achievement follows. Further, segregated education systems concentrate disadvantage. This, it was shown, has all sorts of deleterious effects and not just on the schooling of disadvantaged kids. Social cohesion depends on social mixing and we're better to learn to mix than at school. The shared case study of Poland's dramatic rise in school results is attributed to its introduction of comprehensive schools. Many agreed that despite its limitations, the Gonski review had made hope possible. State school supporters united behind the slogan, I give a Gonski. Now, such supporters must unite again to save state schools from the residualisation caused by private private school expansion. And the federal government must be prepared to stand up to the private school lobby, which has neither the public interest nor the national interest at heart. Timid, standard arrangements and conventional thinking no longer cut it. Change is urgently required. And that article was by Jane Kenway. Back to you, Jean.
0: Oh, well, many thanks, Dale, um, for the timid thinking article. And uh, we'll have a bit of a break.
3: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR.
0: Well, you're still listening to the DOGS program and, of course, the really big issue of our time is the climate crisis, but it has implications for our public schools too. Over to you, Ollie.
1: Thank you, Jean. This is an article written by Ellen Koshland on April 20, 2023. The climate change crisis bearing down on schools on the John Minowde blog. Australian education can learn something from climate change. For a long time, people ignored the truth about the climate, we no longer can because the evidence is clear. There is a looming crisis and we need big structural solutions to enable widespread change and action. The same can now be said about Australia's schools. We find ourselves among the countries showing the greatest gap between advantaged and disadvantaged students. The country that prides itself on achievement and a fair go is falling behind on both counts. We know that education is complex. There are many factors involved. There are diverse voices which are becoming louder and accusing fingers are pointed in every direction. We are at a juncture where we must take stock and come together to tackle the growing inequity. Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner began this work with Waiting for Gonski, where they analysed what what's gone wrong since the Gonski Report. In it, they describe how on a global scale, our public-private hybrid and competing framework is unique, but in all the wrong ways. We are increasingly creating winners and losers amongst our children and families. Many similar countries have ensured a more equitable education for every student, while allowing a diversity of schools to best meet student needs. The Australian Learning Lecture has for the past decade been working to consider a different approach to resolving education's existential crisis. Within schools, it has looked at the need for a new definition of success and how we measure student achievement. It is seeking ways to assist schools in meeting our changing times. The Australian Learning Lecture took the view that a new conversation about education was needed and one that helps more Australians understand the uniqueness of our situation and the damaging consequences it creates. We commissioned the authors to write Choice and Fairness, a common framework for all Australian schools. It is now launched and available. In choice and fairness, Greenwell and Bonner draw on the solutions embraced by nations such as Canada and the Netherlands, solutions which are yielding positive results for children and increasing the nation's productivity. These countries fully fund secular and religious schools as part of the state's provision of compulsory and free schooling. There are no fees and there are minimal enrollment barriers. Families have a wide range of choice from Montessori to faith-based schooling. In contrast, Australia, increasingly but not fully, funds private schools, which in turn continue to charge fees. Their conclusion is that while we see many proposals for school reform in Australia, most focus on changing school practice, often essential, but not, not enough. The outstanding reason for Australia's decline is that we lack a common effective framework for supporting our schools. They argue, if we don't also put in place a new equitable framework of how we fund and regulate our schools, these proposals have little chance to improve the quality of opportunity and educational achievement for all our young people. One way to turn Australia's schools around is to fully fund private schools. We are almost there now. And like other countries, eliminate fees and other enrollment barriers. This would encourage schools to enroll a range of students as a condition of funding and it would increase school choice. We know schools are facing huge problems, and there are plenty of indicators of worse to come. But better I, think
0: I, I think I must um interrupt there. The dogs don't take this position. Um, we have discovered that the more you give to private schools, the more they get they more they want, and they don't fulfill any of the uh, public requirements. Um, We've found that with all of the needs policies, but um, people still believe that somehow they can get a compromise. Unfortunately, in, in the education sector, compromise has always led to greater inequity. That's the dog's position.
4: It's an important point to make. My ears pricked up. The solution is not to fully fund private schools because, as they say, we're almost there already and all it is doing is further entrenching inequity.
1: The author goes on to say, We hope it isn't too late.
0: Well, thank you very much, Oliver. Thank you very much. We'll have a bit of a break now.
4: Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station.
3: Call 03 9419 8377 or sign up online at 3CR.org.au forward slash subscribe.
4: Panoply, panorama, panpipe. only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3CR.org.au.
2: You're
0: listening to Dog Steal, and Sol's got a little bit of interesting scuttlebutt for us from Sydney. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. Um, So in Sydney, this
3: is an exclusive article by Linton Besser uh, for ABC Investigations, and he tells us that Sydney Catholic schools paid almost $400,000 to a firm linked to a mysterious Arthur Thorogood. Did he even exist? In 2020, as coronavirus swept the world and New South Wales drifted in and out of lockdown, Sydney Catholic schools decided it was the perfect time to tackle a growing crisis. In many ways, the organisation was in rude health. It was teaching some 70,000 students across the city and was in happy receipt of its annual $800 million from the taxpayer. But its school facilities were old and growing older. Many of its 147 campuses were reporting pressing maintenance problems and a large-scale renewal program was now urgent. The organization drew up a five-year billion dollar budget for the buildings of new schools and the refurbishment of existing ones and by midway through that year it cast about for the right person to lead the ambitious project.
0: A five-year, billion-dollar project from the Catholic Church, isn't that very interesting? And a large amount of that, of course, is public funding. Mm, In other words, we're now paying for the real estate of the Catholic Church.
3: So the person that they found was Justine Mercer-Moore, a civil engineer with a degree from Liverpool in the UK. They were a senior infrastructure executive with a glittering CV boasting of everything from managing a $600 million hotel development in Dubai to leading a $22 million federal government health program for Indigenous communities. She seemed perfect, offered a salary of more than $200,000 and a leading role managing a $1.8 billion program of what she described as enterprise transformation. Ms. Mercer Moore gladly accepted and began work in September 2020. In the end, however, her tenure at Sydney Catholic Schools would be short and marked less by the building of infrastructure and more by scandal and allegations of conspiracy that saw her depart under a cloud. Within just months of starting in her new role, questions were being raised internally about her methods. Despite Sydney Catholic Schools employing its own recruitment team and operating a significant human resources department, Ms. Mercer Moore instead created a new panel of external recruitment agencies to bring in contractors. It was strange because the process was backwards, one former SES figure recalled. Ordinarily, the organisation might only call upon third parties if its own recruitment efforts had been unsuccessful. Another former official of that organisation recalled that it was more of a concern about process. Have we asked for permission for that engagement and has there been a process, they told the ABC. That's when we dug a little deeper. Now over to Eugene to tell us about Arthur Thorogood.
0: Yes. Well, staff at the organisation who had visibility of these new hirings noticed that recruitment fees worth as much as 30000 per contractor were being charged by an agency that they didn't recognise. Fusion Global Resources. And the representative on the documents was one Arthur Thorogood, and the name raised eyebrows because nobody could ever remember having met him. And there's a question as to whether he's actually uh, a fictional pers- person. And as well as that, uh, they discovered that Justine Mercer-Moore, the lady who they had uh, put in charge of this project, um, uh, had a conflict of interest. Her uh, husband worked there too, and she put in writing what she said verbally, that her husband worked for this mystery firm. Uh, so it, it ends up that really they really are quite unsure when this $800 million is gone. Now, I, think that the, I really do think that the taxpayers and the Auditor-General, a lot of other people, should be asking some very, very hard questions. Uh, there has been an investigator, the ABC investigator, and he might be fictional. In the end, the Audit and Risk Committee of the Board of Sydney Catholic Schools was told the investigation into Justine Mercer-Moore was not able to be concluded. There were two central problems one was her apparent lack of cooperation with the inquiry and the other one was they couldn't find Arthur Thorogood, the fictional person. And that's what the investigators surmised that he didn't quite exist or if he did, it wasn't his name. So um, it's very interesting. It's all up in the air, but it should be inquired. There should be a very big inquiry. And, uh, well, I don't believe, the dogs don't believe one penny should be given to the Catholic Church because, uh, (laughs) well, they're not responsible for the expenditure of public money. But um, we'll give it a break now and we'll go over to America with uh, Dale.
4: Article here from the Diane Ravitch blog. As the war on books rages, a Virginia school official proposes closing down libraries. So Spotsylvania County's superintendent, voted the idea as cost-cutting measure before then removing over a dozen titles from the shelves. So Christina and Robert Burris, the parents of a high school student in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, attended a November 2021 school board meeting for a particular reason, to complain about 33 Snowfish, a novel about homeless teenagers who escaped sexual abuse. The 2003 book written by Adam Rapp, could traumatise teenagers with its shocking content, the couple alleged. The school board re- responded immediately, with one member not present. The board voted 6-0 to zero to remove sexually explicit books from school libraries. We should throw those books in a fire, said board member Rabi Abusmail lamenting that public schools want kids to read more about gay pornography than about Jesus Christ. Another, Kirk Twigg, said he'd like to see the books before burning them so we can identify within our community that we are eradicating this bad stuff. Residents of Spotsylvania County, a fast-growing area halfway between Richmond and the nation's capital, soon voiced their displeasure over the board's move, prompting it to quickly reverse the decision. But the battle over book access wasn't over. Mark Taylor, the superintendent of Spotsylvania County Public Schools, last month proposed shutting all school libraries in the district. Doing so would be a crucial cost-cutting move, he argued, noting that the school system was facing a $21.8 million funding gap. After the county officials approved a budget in April, the shortfall came out to be $10 million. Just days after Taylor suggested shutting down school libraries, he announced that 14 books, including The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison and All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson, would be removed from their their shelves, saying they had sexually explicit content. When a parent in Spotsylvania County challenges a book, it triggers a formal review process by a committee that includes parents, teachers and others. The 14 books removed from libraries had already been deemed acceptable by book review committees. But Taylor has argued that the removal is justified by a Virginia law requiring schools to notify parents of sexually explicit content in instructional material. Our recent decision to remove 14 sexually explicit books from the library does not prohibit teachers from including them in classroom assignments with parental notification in accordance with applicable law and policy, Taylor noted in a lengthy statement to HuffPost, adding that the district doesn't have the resources to review all 390,000 books in school libraries for explicit content. In the space of one week, we found ourselves with the threat of the library being closed and books being pulled from shelves, Cassie Gregorio Palmer said, a parent who runs a Facebook page about Spotsylvania Public Schools, told HuffPost. Prior to this, we were a well-respected school district, Gregorio Palmer added. My fear is that this this is the new normal. It's a familiar story. Conservative parents, sometimes backed by right-wing activist groups, have been objecting to books found in schools across the US, including in Pennsylvania, Florida, and Missouri. The challenges and bans have led to some educators have led some educators to consider limiting the resources they make available to students, and surveys have found that conservatives that the conservatives culture war is contributing to a national teacher shortage. At first, I didn't think that conservatives were trying to gut public schools, Gregorio Palmer said. But more and more these days, I just don't see how they're not. Taylor said his school district was standing up for parental rights. I'm a big proponent of civil liberties, he said. I'm particularly concerned about the civil liberties of parents and their right to choose whether or not children are exposed to sexually explicit materials in contravention of Virginia law. Our top priority is the safety and well-being of the children entrusted to us. State law requires that schools have libraries on site, so it would be hard to enact the closures that Taylor proposed. But his suggestion raised alarm in Spotsylvania about what educational resources may end up on the chopping, chopping block. Even during stressful budgetary seasons, removing or defunding libraries All librarians, undermines the very core of learning, said a statement from the Central Rappahannock Regional Library, a public library system that serves Spotsylvania and the surrounding area. We urge the school board to reject this possibility to ensure that Spotsylvania County students continue to benefit from the strongest educational system that can be provided. Spotsylvania County Supervisor Chris Jakubuski, meanwhile, said that closing school libraries was a pretty stupid idea. Taylor has been a controversial figure since becoming a nominee for the superintendent role, which opened last year after the school board fired then-superintendent Scott Baker, a former regional superintendent of the year and teacher of the year, without cause. Spotsylvania residents were baffled by that decision. At the time, parents alleged that Taylor had made racist and homophobic posts on social media and that he suggested parents remove their children from public schools. So, Taylor who also worked in a local government in another county, came with no background in education other than homeschooling his own children, one of whom cited her negative experience with his teaching to ask the board not to appoint her estranged father. For many, many years, there was very little to do with any kind of textbook learning. J.L. Taylor wrote in a letter to the board, To this day, I still feel like there's a lot of holes in my education. The next school board budget meeting is currently scheduled for Monday, but it's unclear what the board will do to address the funding gap. But the fact that the superintendent would propose closing libraries amid a faux outrage over books has left local residents worried about the state of public schools. Even if they don't close the libraries, it doesn't mean they're supporting a strong public school system in Spotsylvania, Gregorio Palmer said, everything is not fine. It's scary times in the US. Uh, and if you have a chance, check out this week's foreign correspondent on ABC iView because there's an episode called Florida, the war on woke. And it's about Ron DeSantis, the extremely conservative governor of Florida and the way he's pursuing any kind of discussion around the history of race relations in America. It is quite shocking to see some of the absolute and blatant lies that are being told about uh, what history teachers are teaching in public schools. There's this false narrative that teachers are telling students that they should be guilty and you've got lifelong teachers telling about how they would never say that to a student. They would never teach Uh, American race history in such a way as to make white students feel guilt. Uh, One of the history teachers says that if he'd found any of his faculty doing that, they would have been sacked on the spot. But this is the lie that the governor is telling the populace. And uh, it it looks like he's on a fast track to become president in America. It's quite frightening. But uh, check out Foreign Correspondent on ABC this week because – the war on woke is a very, very interesting examination of just what happens when a conservative gets put in charge of uh, public schools and what they can teach about critical race theory and social history. Back to you, Jean. Well now it's
0: time for the good news and the great state school of the week.
1: Every week on the Doctor
3: programme we have a special segment. To show a different state school is a great school.
4: State schools are great schools. School of the week, state school. School of the school. week, great state schools. State, state schools, schools school are great of the
2: week, school for the week here on the Dogs
4: Program.
3: And this week's great state school of the week is. Tallarook Primary School, which is in Tallarook in Victoria in Goulburn Northeastern. Talarook Primary School is a small rural school established in 1875, located in the town of Talarook, approximately 95 kilometres north of Melbourne. The school prides itself on being a caring community school, with the school's vision and values statement to develop well-adjusted individuals who strive to achieve their full potential in a dynamic, caring, and supportive environment is evident in all their decision-making. That sounds fantastic. Have some facts and figures for you about Talaruk. The school has currently only 12 pupils. That is a tiny school. The ICSIA value of the school is... 1069 which is above the average of 1000. And this is a very small rural community with uh, school and 22% of the kids have parents from the top quartile of income, 29% from the second highest quartile of income, 34% from the second lowest quartile of income, and 15% from the bottom quartile of income. This school is full of both semi-advantaged and disadvantaged students with a dedicated principal and teacher. It costs the taxpayer $40,632, well above the Gonski Resource Standard, to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $107,000 from the federal government and $325,000 from the state government. 4,324 from fees and 10,685 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have been only 153,000. All this public and private money is money well spent. This is a close knit community determined to support its public school and the children and staff. Congratulations, Tallarook Primary School!
4: And that brings us to the end of this week's dogs program. Thanks to everyone who has contributed. If you'd like to find out more about the dogs, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye for now.
2: I dream. salt lake city joe says i am standing by my bed they framed you on a murder charge says joe but i ain't dead says joe but i ain't dead the copper bosses killed you joe